Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today's episode is about saving Arctic seabirds from marauding polar bears, and we're going to talk about a project that's happening 25 miles east of Barrow, Alaska, up in the Arctic. And my guests today are George DeVoke and Lori Wark. Hi, this is Lori. Hi, Lori. It's uh, great to having... be here. And is that George joining us? This is George DeVoke. Hey, George. Yay. So we just started the broadcast, okay. and we are talking about um, saving birds in, well, Saving bird, Arctic seabirds uh, way up north on Cooper's Island, east of uh, Bell, Alaska. Welcome, George. Tell me who you are. <laughs> Tell our guests who yeah, we are. This is, this is George Tavoki. Um I've been studying uh, seabirds up in the Arctic since 1970. Um, I have a Ph.D. in zoology, and I'm director and founder of Friends of Cooper Island. And also with us is Lori Wark. Hi, Lori. Hi. And Lori is the web producer for Friends of Cooper Island and Adventures in Climate Change. And uh, I'm also with the Ocean River Institute, which is uh, yeah, oceanriver.org. And we've been working with uh, George and his efforts with the Friends of Cooper's Island to save, uh, to help the black guillemots that are nesting up there. And, George, you recently reached out about a call for uh, more boxes. What, what, what's going on there with the boxes? Well, um, after studying the birds for 28 years without having any problems with them being in wooden nest sites, the pack ice melt uh, drove polar bears to Cooper Island. And it, is, it, it was once called Cooper's Island, but it's now called Cooper Island. And, it is, uh, and, and, and the bears are hungry when they reach the island. They're looking for anything to eat, and they flipped over the boxes and ate the guillemot chicks that I was studying. So this got to be a major problem until two years ago when we realized we can provide a very heavy-duty plastic case that's been modified into basically being a birdhouse and found out last year that the guillemots love breeding in them and the polar bears can't get into them. So, so we have a sponsorship program now. Uh, it is a, both a, a fundraiser and an educational outreach program to get people involved so they can actually sponsor for a year uh, a nest site and find out what happened to that nest site and uh, how the how the guillemot pair that's being there did and really be part of the climate change story. Uh, last summer, you had about 150 boxes set out. Right, we had uh, uh, we had 150 cases that we took out last year, and uh, most of them were occupied. And because we used to have 200 wooden boxes out there, we wanted to bring the colony back to its historic high, so we took 50 more cases out now. Um, and uh, we, are, we are hoping that there will be 200 uh, pairs breeding soon, and it is important to have this colony persist because it is monitoring a part of the Arctic 
that can't be studied well by boats or by people doing their typical oceanographic research. So these guillemots really are monitoring a system that no one else is looking at, and how these birds are doing tells us a great deal about changes in the Arctic. Right. Ocean River Shields of Achilles radio is uh, for people that want to make a difference in the environment. And today's episode is an opportunity where people can um, help to acquire these nesting boxes that will protect the black guillemots that are nesting on Cooper Island and um, particularly from polar bears that are coming ashore because the ice has moved so far offshore that they are, are coming ashore hungry. And although this is an insignificant part of their diet, it's a big deal for the guillemots. And so, um, Lori, where can people go to learn more about um, how they can uh, help save the black guillemot? Sure. They can go to uh, two sites, actually. Uh, one is uh, cooperisland.org or they can go to um, adventuresinclimatechange.com, and they can find out how to. And on cooperisland.org, they can actually sign up right there and donate and find out some more information about how these nest boxes are really helping the guillemot. And the other website, the Adventures in Climate Change, uh, is where you, you tell us some of the, the, what's going on, right? Yeah, um, that's, that's uh, Friends in Cooper Island and Adventures in Climate Change work very closely together. Um, and George actually, uh, his blogs are on my site, on the Adventures in Climate Change site, and people can actually keep track of what's going on while he's in this remote area. It's not, it's not easy for him to always communicate, but we do a pretty good job of, of getting information out to the blog, and they can see pictures of what's going on and get an up-to-the-minute, up to you know, or, or just, you know, periodic periodic information about what's happening on the island and how the chicks are doing, how, how the bears are doing, that kind of thing. Yes, thank you. Now, George, many people first learned of your work uh, from the uh, New York Times magazine, or the New Yorker magazine article. It was a, it was New York Times magazine, and actually, yes. it was a, it was in it was in it was in 2002. So it's actually been a decade, and it's hard to believe that it's been a decade since that came out. And of course, uh, many of the changes that are going on in the Arctic now were, are are far worse than were even anticipated when that article came out. Well, some of us may have missed that article. Um, so tell us about how you came to be saving the guillemots of Cooper Island. Well, um, I was working in the Arctic in the early 70s when uh, there was the possibility of offshore uh, oil uh, drilling or transport, and uh, I was getting gathering baseline data, and I visited Cooper Island, which had some boxes left there by the Navy in the 50s, and found black guillemots breeding in these wooden boxes. And wanting to study seabirds, I went back in 1975 and built more wooden boxes to get the colony up to a sample size that was worth studying and got it up to uh, 200 pairs uh, by, by the 1980s. So, so I was just studying essentially ornithology in terms of the lifespan of birds, how many young they were raising, and things like that. And after doing that for almost 25 years, climate change really started to show itself. And suddenly I realized I had 25 years of good baseline data that could be compared with the now rapid retreat of the pack ice. So I didn't go out to study climate change, which is an important thing. I went out to study birds and the climate started changing around them, and as a result, I was studying. I was suddenly uh, studying climate change. So, um, so that has uh, now the now the response of the birds in a number of ways has been one of the uh, uh, e 
easiest stories to tell because people understand it more than they do things about physical oceanography and things like that. And also because of the fact of the longevity of the study and having certain birds that live to be 30 years old and things like that that have lived through this climate change. It has, it has a lot of educational aspects that, that make it an easily understood story. Well, that's remarkable. These little um, alcid seabirds, uh, who knew they'd live 30 years? Well, no, and, and no one did until I started my study. The longest live one on record was uh, 12 or 13 years. And, um, yeah, I had a bird that essentially lived through the major changes in climate change, and we have three birds this year that are 28 to 29 years old. That's how old they were last year, and, and certainly one or two of them will probably have, probably made it through the winter. So there will be uh, a 30-year-old bird uh, breeding on the island this, this coming summer. These are really special Arctic birds. Uh, we know black guillemots. I'm here in, in Massachusetts, and, uh, you know, they come down along the coast of Maine easily and stuff. Um, but the, the, the black guillemots that you're studying have a distinctive um, natural history that, uh, that you know, might suggest that they're a separate species from the ones we're seeing here. Yes, and actually that is a very good point because uh, if people go to Maine and they see all of the black guillemots there or they hear about them elsewhere, uh, this this uh, subspecies that I'm studying now was its own species up until 1940 or so, and 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 actually probably should be its own species again. It was actually trapped in the Arctic Basin uh, during the last ice age, and as a result, all the birds that persisted through that time period got very closely aligned with ice habitats and also lost all their migratory uh, instincts. So they are up in the Arctic Basin all winter long, living in tiny cracks in the ice, and are essentially uh, used to living north of the Arctic Circle for uh, 12 months every year. So it is a very different type of species, which is why this colony is an excellent indicator of change in the Arctic, because it is, it is a truly Arctic bird trying to adapt to major changes in the Arctic, just as the polar bear is uh, a truly Arctic mammal trying to do that. And more so than the polar bear, they are black guillemots, these black guillemots are dependent on uh, food under... And, and, you know, under the ice or the ice flows. Yes, that was one of the things that we first went there thinking we would see the guillemots when we went out in the 70s. We thought we would see them feeding on a wide range of fish. They were feeding only on Arctic cod, which is around a six-inch uh, small fish that is very fatty. And it was the only food they were bringing back to their, to their young. And Arctic cod of that size are found right under the ice. That's, that's where they want to be because they're feeding there on little shrimp and zooplankton that are found under the ice. So that's all we saw up until the last decade or so, and then the ice retreat meant that the Arctic cod weren't there, so the guillemots now have to try to find alternate prey, and that's been a big part of what we've been doing for the past five or six years is monitoring the prey that's returned. And now we even put temperature depth recorders on the guillemots to see how deep they're diving to get these various prey items. So are they diversifying their food? Yes, they are. They are. I mean, there is now an interesting story about about how a uh, how a species can cope with changes like this. They have found um, other prey items which are not as high fat uh, as the Arctic cod, and as a result, they aren't able to raise quite as many young. But they are raising some young on uh, alternate prey that is not associated with ice. So there's almost a selection event going on now for individuals that can cope with a melting Arctic. Um, and since there's offshore drilling and transportation and even commercial fishing being planned for this region, 
having this colony persist uh, during the next few decades is very important. So we are very glad to be able to see that these birds will be able to persist even if the ice pulls well off the continental shelf. Well, that's hopeful that if we continue to see increasing carbon in the atmosphere, um, it, it may not necessarily equate to uh, the loss of this black guillemot species. No, I mean, it, it, it will, I mean, and uh, luckily it is a very, black, black, black guillemots and the genus in, in general, the guillemots, are very adaptable to a wide range of uh, both nesting habitats and feeding habitats. So, so they are showing that whatever happened 25,000 years ago during the last ice age didn't really restrict them to just being an ice age species, but, uh, but certainly they are struggling during this, during this period of transition. And having these birds be banded and having all the history on them shows how they're making it through this period of transition. So it's really kind of an unprecedented look at how a species adapts to major climate change. I had the good fortune of visiting you before the bears arrived, and uh, you were good to take me out to a box that I expected to see a guillemot under, and when you cracked it open, you know, lifted a little couple inches so I could peek under it, there was a puffin. Uh, what was with that? Well, that was uh, that is that is a uh, uh, that is one more climate change story from the island. Horn puffins are found in the subarctic in the in the Bering Sea, where there's over a million of them breeding on the rocky islands of the Bering Sea. But as the ice melted in the 70s and 80s, they started coming north. And then over the last two decades, they've been prospecting Cooper Island for nest sites because they now have enough open water to breed there. So they go into the same nest cavities that the guillemots do. And unfortunately, since they're a nest competitor, they will displace eggs and push out young. So they were a factor for a number of years in stopping guillemot productivity. But they are now breeding, as you saw, on the island. So that, is a, that was a major range extension of uh, many hundreds of miles northward as the pack ice retreated. So, so we are very interested in monitoring them. But we do want to keep them out of the guillemot nest site. So having these new nest cases not only stops the polar bear from eating the guillemots, it stops the puffins from going in because we've made a nest opening that is big enough to accommodate a guillemot but not a horned puffin. Oh, great. So you can have puffins without diminishing the uh, guillemots. Yes, and we are taking up some larger cases this year that we've modified. These are the heavy-duty plastic cases because polar bears will eat young puffins as they have in the past. So some lucky people in the future will be able to sponsor some of the horned puffin nest uh, sites after they take them over this, this, this coming summer. You started with pelican boxes, and now you're introducing puffin boxes. Well, yes, we started with pelican, <laughs> but now we use nano cases. We found we found a uh, we, there was a company or there is a company in Canada that makes a, a heavy duty plastic case, and they call it nanook, which is the Inuit word for polar bear. And they were they were nice and they 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 gave us cases at cost that let us uh, do this whole project. Without that sort of donation, we would have been able to do that. Well, that's phenomenal. So. Um, so you started out with just ten or something? Yes, we had ten cases in. We had ten cases in 2010 just to see if it worked or not. We had no idea whether polar bears could could get into the cases or not. And then we had very good success in in 2010, which caused us to take 150 cases out in 2011. And that showed that yes, indeed, that, uh, that these things are excellent cases, and the birds like them even much more so than the old wooden cases because. They feel so secure inside this, this very dark cavity that even all of our field work is much easier now because we don't flush birds off of the nests. Uh, 
were able to reach in and grab eggs and chicks and not cause a great deal of disruption as we did in the past. So I recommend that people visit uh, Cooper's Island, no, cooperisland.org and, right, and, um, and see the, the film you have there. Oh, yes, we have some very good video, uh, both at Lori's uh, uh, website, uh, at, at her blog, Adventures in Climate Change, and on the cooperisland.org uh, site. And uh, there, is a, there is a video of a bear trying to get into one of the cases in 2010 and not being able to do so. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of, um, there, are, there are a number of videos that show some birds uh, breeding in the cases and going in and out of them. So, um, yeah, anyone who wants to see that should, uh, should visit uh, either uh, cooperisland.org or Adventures in Climate Change. Uh, this is phenomenal. The bear is literally turning the box over and then, like, stomping on it, you know, with his forepaws. And uh, yes. the birds are surviving inside, apparently. Right, they are. And th- that was in 2010. The video was from 2010 when, when bears were still eating chicks in, in regular sites. Now the bears are smart enough to go up to one box and realize they can't get in, so they don't even give the, the cases a tough time. They just realize, wait a minute, this is not a source of food. And that's why we were able to have so many young flights last year that the bears that came to the island uh, would sniff the first box they encountered and then just, and then just walk on. So, um, so yeah, and I actually one of the things I'd like to mention is that for anyone who has a uh, oh a child or even a school class that might be associated with this is an excellent teaching tool to to like have the class have its own uh, nest case where we can tell them and one isn't just sponsoring a nest case one is also almost adopting the breeding pair there uh, you know with birds that are up to thirty years of age so we will tell you which which pair is there. Um, um, how long they have been breeding there, and give you the history um, uh, of them as we as, as we get the program developed. Right. If you had an after-school group or a scout group or a church group, you know, you could go in on uh, supporting one of these boxes for what only a hundred dollars or something. Right. For a for a minimum uh, donation of one hundred dollars, uh, one can one can sponsor a uh, one of the one of the nano nest cases. So things worked out pretty good. I mean, you, you tried 10, and um, it looks like you had 11 fledglings. That's pretty good for 10 boxes. And oh, then yeah, uh, no, in 2011, then, you went with 150, right? Right, 150, and then we had oh, uh, about 110 fledged last year. So, so, so that the colony productivity is now back to what it was uh, even prior to, uh, to the major climate change with polar bears and puffins showing up. And this is, this is both good news and bad news. I mean, I mean... The good news is that, that the study can persist as the Arctic rapidly changes, but the bad news is that the guillemots basically have to be breeding in bunkers in order to survive in this, in this changing Arctic. And um, uh, even though it's nice to have these birds, especially the long live ones that I've been studying for, for, for decades, have them again be able to breed successfully, I'm now aware that I have to create something that is a very unique nest site so they can now deal with a, very, with a, with a much more harsh environment than they had in the past. Except they've always had a unique nest site. You know, you expect to find guillemots nesting in cliff faces and into, you know, burrows. And lo and behold, you discovered on Cooper Island these munition boxes that have been blown apart. Uh, so the nails are sticking straight out. And uh, they're being used as shelters, uh, man-made shelters for the guillemots. Yes, and that, that sort of... Uh unique nest site has been a big part of the study in that we have access to the parents and the nest contents for every nest on the island, 
and that's very uh, unique for a seabird study because they're typically in seabirds nests way back in rock rubble or up on rock cliffs that are quite some heights on ledges and things like this. But this is like having a series of uh, like bluebird uh, or wren houses in your backyard and being able to go out and check them every day to see how they're doing. So it gets past a lot of the major problems with logistics that other seabird studies have. That's great. Uh, Laurie, what's it been like telling the story of these um, uh, birds and Arctic animals? It's, it's been exciting. Uh, you know, as a, as a non-science person who's, who's interested in this kind of thing, it's been great to get these blogs and to follow the process of, of the study that's been going on. And I remember, I think it was not 2009 when there was only one fledgling because of the predation of puffins and polar bears and things like that. And now we're seeing that there's more fledglings coming, coming through. And, and these birds are really beautiful. I, it, I encourage people to go on the sites to look at the, the pictures of some of these. They're, they're, they're dark, mostly dark black, but they have these white patches, and then they have like these distinctive red feet and red, red mouth lining. And so they're really gorgeous. Um, and so it's, and I actually sponsored a nest site last year, and it was great to know about what was, I felt like a detachment to these birds, that they were, they were my birds, and I could find out what was going on with them. And that's one of the, the, the interesting things about this sponsorship program is that you actually get a number site where, that will be your birds, and that you find out, like, um, the, the bands that they're wearing, so the, those are their identification. Uh, you find out, you know, periodically as much as we can, we can do, we, we send out information about, you know, pictures or information about that particular best, uh, nest site. So you feel like you're really part of this whole research. Um, and, 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 and I felt very possessive about my birds. <laughs> well, it's wonderful seeing the photographs and the, the bar graphs and uh, all the uh, things that you put into your uh, the website. Yeah, and we want to try to give as much information so people really understand the whole story of it. And and George is great in when in his blogs and telling telling what's happening on a day to day basis. Um, you know when the bears are coming and um, what he has to think about now that there are bears on the island that he didn't have to think about before. So it's sort of it's interesting to follow the whole story. And I you know I'm hoping that people will come to to actually do that even for this season especially. I'm talking with Lori Wark and George Devoki. And we'll be right back after this break. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners 
partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Hey, did you know Voice America has partnered with the KidStar Network to expand their reach through Voice America Kids? Voice America Kids will feature talk radio for kids by kids, along with special event programming and live broadcasts. Each program is conveniently archived for on-demand listening at any time. Please check our archives for the latest events and happenings on voiceamericakids.com. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, and we're talking with George Zabokey and Lori Wark about Friends of Cooper Island, and the website is cooperisland.org. Uh, you can also uh, learn about their work through oceanriver.org, as they are a partner with, our, with my organization as well. Um, Lori, uh, tell us more about the sponsorship of uh, these uh, Guillemot nesting boxes. Sure. Um... Yeah, people can go to uh, actually cooperisland.org, and right on the nav bar, there's a place that says sponsor, sponsor a nest, and, and click on that. And there's a way you can actually sponsor a nest right there. Um, and for a minimum of $100, you get to sponsor an actual actual nest box that is protecting these, bo- these, these guillemots right now. And during the season that George is up there, he'll be taking pictures and noting what's going on in your, your particular nest box and sending as much as, as many as we can because there is some connectivity problems sometimes up where he is. But um, we'll be sending out information about what's happening with your, your parent, the, the parent birds, the nestlings. Um, we'll, also, um, we'll also do shout-outs to, uh, on, the, on the, our Facebook and, and Twitter to let people know that something's happening on their, on their, with their, with their um, birds. Uh, and maybe even sponsor a featured, uh, have a featured sponsor on the web, website. So you could be sort of like this special person that has this, these inter- an interesting story with your birds. Um, and it's, it's important to um, realize that, as, as George said, this is really an excellent teaching aid. If, if a parent wants to buy one for a chill out child, it's great to be able to follow something like this. Um, and, and a school class could, could really value, get some value from it. Um, so that's how, sort of how it works. It, it just um, allows you to have a real connection to this work that's going on. And you can also follow all that's going on on Cooper Island through the blogs that, that we post. So that's how yes. it works. So, yes, it's a way of tying. Please, people should look at the website and learn more about how they can uh, be tied in to making a difference for the lives of birds, uh, 
Arctic seabirds, and as well as uh, having polar bears you know, eat things better than birds <laughs> on, on Cooper Island. And, and Rob, if I could just add, yes. um, uh, one of the things that has been happening, and I never thought this was going to be happening, but all of the nests just had numbers uh, that meant their subcolony, their numbers such as F3 or G1 and things like this. Now that I have a list of sponsors for each nest site, as I'm on the island alone, and as you know, I'm out there alone a great deal, I'm actually not just checking nest site G1, I'm checking Lori's nest site in that regard. So, so, like, so like everything I observe there now has a different context for me because it isn't just, okay, this is just data I'm gathering. I'm thinking, gee, I can tell Lori about what I saw at, the, at this website so, or at this nest site. So I'm thinking that as this progresses, as things happen in the summer and I am blogging, that I will be able to mention the sponsors if they if they don't mind their name being uh, mentioned, and we'll certainly check on that. But saying that's that nest site so and so sponsored by thus and such uh, had this happen at it. Uh, so so it changes the context for me in that it makes the makes the nest sites more connected to other people than just these nest sites sitting on the island. That's great. You're like the mayor of Cooper Island, and you're going to be reporting on the different households in your community there. Yes, and, and if, if you're out there for 14 weeks, as it was last summer, and for six of those weeks on my own, you will do uh, anything to fantasize social interactions. So <laughs> having, these, having the social interactions be with the people who own the nest sites uh, will mean uh, as much to me almost as it will mean to them. It's pretty daunting, the potential of social interactions with polar bears. How do you survive that? Well, when I first uh, started seeing them in 2000. To, I didn't know how to deal with polar bears. Now I have, uh, learned uh, pretty much how to deal with them and have come to respect them a great deal, but also know that they will do most anything to try to avoid contact with me. And one is essentially just waiting for the either crazy bear or the starving bear that will come up and act very atypically and approach even if you're uh, shooting a gun over its head or flashing a bright light in its eyes and things like that. So. So I've come to understand polar bear behavior uh, a great deal, but also have to be aware that I'm waiting for the one bear in 1,000 that will not act that way and have everything ready to deal with it. Um, and actually having an electric fence around the cabin has been a big uh, improvement over the past two to three years uh, because polar bears, when they touch the fence, always turn around and walk the other way. That's enormous. But we hear about what dire straits the polar bears are in, so... It's reassuring to hear that you're you're not seeing real aberrant behavior of desperate bears or something. No, you know, and that I mean, I mean, and certainly since I, you know, since there are so many issues about the fact that uh, bears are in trouble, I thought, gee, maybe they will get hungry to the point where it will override their fear of humans, and luckily that hasn't happened yet. But it, it's also been very sad in that we used to see mothers with cubs all the time. Um, now uh, we don't see that because because the mothers have to swim such a distance from the ice that the young can't hang on to the, uh, to the, to, to the mother uh, for, for that distance. So we, we can see the changes that are taking place in the polar bear populations. Um, and last year, almost every bear we saw either had a collar on it or had been sampled for DNA um, by, by, by various people who were doing studies on polar bears on the North Coast. So it's... Uh, there is a rather small population of bears hanging on there, but they aren't reproducing much. Well, that's a new development, because I think when I was up there, the population was growing slowly. Yeah, no, it, it was, yeah. At that, at, at that point, it was, 
it was still doing uh, it was still doing rather well. But yeah, and it was it was always sad to see mother bears on the island with their cubs uh, and the mother trying to find something to eat so she could uh, lactate and feed her young and you know and really being reduced to eating polar uh, eating 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 Dilamot chicks. So um, um, yeah, it's um, uh, it, it's I mean. It's been very depressing seeing the end of the summer on the island, knowing what it used to be like, and this and having these young guillemots now fledge is the one positive aspect of the end of the summer. Uh, realizing that yes, that things will persist with this colony because over 100 birds fledged over this past breeding uh, uh, season. Hmm. Yeah. Now. There are all kinds of changes happening in the Arctic. There's talk about increasing commercial fishing. There um, are fabulous plans for more commercial shipping. Um, what, how does this relate to uh, what you're seeing at Cooper's Island, and what um, concerns does this raise? Well, uh, up until recently, uh, our motto was that we were monitoring climate change with an Arctic seabird. Now we're basically monitoring change because of the things that you just mentioned, the Various human activities uh, with offshore drilling, with commercial fishing, and with the Northwest Passage soon to be open on a regular basis. And vessels going through the Northwest Passage will go right past Cooper Island. So that increases the potential for oil spills, uh, certainly as does the offshore drilling. And then the commercial fishing, which um, uh, they have a moratorium currently, but they are finding pollock and other commercial fish in the Chukchi Sea and in the Beaufort Sea. And at some point, they'll be doing commercial fishing, and you have all the problems there of guillemots being caught in nets as uh, seabirds are at more southern latitudes. Um, and also you have the potential of them fishing out certain populations uh, of, of prey that guillemots might be feeding on and being impacted that way. So, um, so there are a number of things that will need to be monitored over the next few decades. And what's important now is that we have almost 40 years of baseline data, which was pre-human development there, and we can see how, uh, how the breeding biology changes as those things occur. Mm. As long as you can separate it from the changing food sources. Well, and see, that is, that is obvious. That, that, is, that is one of the problems. I mean, and um, I, I have to laugh about the fact that the first few cruises I went on in the early 70s were meant to be baseline cruises where one gathered information and figured out, okay, this is what's in the Beaufort Sea and this is what it's doing. So then in the future, someone could go back and if there was a spill or something, see how it changed. And, of course, now there is no baseline. Now it's all changing um, on such a regular basis that one can't gather data in 2012 and then after, a, say, a spill or something in 2020, say, oh, this is how things were impacted, which is why it's all the more important to do an annual study on the island. But, but, but as you say, tweezing out, Climate change versus uh, offshore drilling versus commercial fishing is going to be a real problem up there, and there aren't many ways of doing it because there aren't many research vessels up there or anyone who's been really gathering any real data uh, except for the stuff on Cooper Island over the past 40 years. So Jeremy Jackson's shifting baselines is really becoming the norm. Yes, yes. No, it, I mean, it, 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 I mean, it's... And, and, and I even have to be, uh, I, I, I would love that some of the people who came out with me in the, in the 70s could suddenly go out, because I have, just like when you see a child grow up, you don't suddenly say, oh, my gosh, you've gotten much bigger. It's always the person who hasn't seen the child for a number of years who said, oh, gee, you've changed a lot. So I've seen, I've seen the gradual changes. The people who were out there almost 40 years ago, if they were to come out now, I don't think they'd have any 
uh, way of even, uh, you know, orienting on the island because of all the changes that have occurred to the shoreline as the island erodes. They'd be amazed at the fact that the puffins are around as much as they are. And certainly no one ever used to see polar bears. We used to never even unpack the gun for right. like 28 years. Yeah, I, I've been astounded right here in my own community of um, how much more wildlife there is than, you know, I was here for Earth Day in 1970, and it was like everything was going downward. And uh, the, the sense then was that we wouldn't be seeing so much wildlife now. And fortunately, because of environmental regulations and more responsible actions, um, there are, there's, there's, it's wonderful that the wildlife we do have. Of course, other things are suffering. Now, my, my politician was talking about, you know, don't worry about drilling in Anwar because there's so much space up here. And, and his defense was, well, who's been to Anwar? And it's like, well, excuse me, I've been to Prudhoe Bay, and there seems to be a lot of space available for drillers still in, in that area. Um, do, you, do, do you think that uh, the oil industries have any need for going into Anwar? And um, are there ways to be smart about increased drilling that isn't going to threaten wildlife, like are, you know, some places better than others or something? Oh, well, um, I mean, certainly there, there, are, there are ways in which, you know, the oil companies are trying to deal with, uh, with limiting the environmental in, uh, impacts of drilling, but, uh, but certainly for offshore, and this is a big concern right now, is that, is that uh, things happen when you drill offshore. I mean, I, mean, it is, I mean, you can have everything in place, and you can even know a great deal about the ecosystem, but if there is something that happens that is the one in 10,000 mistake and you get an oil spill under the ice, um, that is going to be much more uh, catastrophic than any spill up to the present because of the fact that cleanup under the ice uh, is going to be so hard and also oil degradation. I mean, oil does break down with time, and that's the saving grace. I mean, it may take a few decades, but uh, right. uh, certainly breaks certainly breaks down, it's going to break down in an environment where, uh, certainly in an, in, an, in an ocean that up until recently barely had a temperature above 32 degrees, it's going to break down very slowly so that the, so that the long-term impact can be, can be huge. But, you know, given the fact that the ice melt is due to fossil fuel uh, emissions, there is a larger question of how much, uh, how much, uh, effort should be spent on trying to exploit the last oil versus trying to, to switch to alternate energy sources. And um, you That's know, true, but is it the last oil? I mean, you know, it looks to me like the Arctic North Shore there is divided into thirds with, you know, the eastern third being Prudhoe Bay area and the central third being Anwar and the western third being the uh, Native American, you know, territories that they permit drilling on and manage drilling on. So, you know, if, if they were allowed to drill in Anwar, the middle third, as if they've, and I don't know how close they are to using up the either third on either side, um, you know, it seems to me that going into Anwar is an excuse not to pay the Native Americans to take oil from their area. Um, would, would that alleviate the need to go offshore, or is it they just want to do everything at once? Oh, I think that, I mean, I mean, at least my understanding is that uh, since the flow through the Transalaska Pipeline is now so much reduced to what it once was, uh, they are trying to develop any sort of uh, field that they can feed into the Transalaska Pipeline because they have that delivery system in place. Uh, this is one of the issues with the Chukchi Sea. If that really comes through big this summer in terms of the exploration there, there's questions how one would get that oil out and one would 
have to build a pipeline across from from uh, from Prudhoe Bay over to Wainwright or someplace on the Chukchi coast, and then um, be able to get it from there. So so they are. Uh, I mean, I think I think much of it has to do with the with the current transportation system, the current uh, transport system, and uh, ways in which they can feed into that. And and the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is is one of those, as is offshore Beaufort and off, offshore Chukchi, and now um, NPRA. NPR, yeah, they, uh, uh, yeah, which is, which is the National Petroleum Reserve, Alaska. National Petroleum Reserve. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, is there any reason to promote uh, taking it from the land instead of the sea because of the conditions you talked about, or is there just not enough on the land, anyways? Oh, I think I mean taking on land was a big part of what the North Slope Borough, uh, which is the county government up there, uh, and yes. also the various uh, native groups. Uh, wanted to uh, and for and for a long time uh, encouraged because of the fact that uh, is that the people living on the Chukchi and Beaufort coast the 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 Nupiat are so tied to the resources in the in the sea such as bowhead whales and seals and eider ducks and things like that that they that they still harvest um, yes that uh, that that keeping keeping anything off off of the ocean. Uh, was a was a major uh, strategy to the point now though that one can't even back off from or can't can't really have them back off to Chukchi and Beaufort because um, because of the fact that there are lease areas up, up there that have uh, been leased uh, by the federal government and will be uh, you know um, explored and possibly exploited. Well, that's too bad. I'd rather see the North Shore Borough benefit than the big oil companies and stuff. Well, uh, yeah, no, it's a, um, it's. Uh, I mean, keeping things on land uh, will, you know, would, 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 would ultimately be the simplest thing to do. And of course, one of the benefits now is that for many of the areas, you can do directional drilling from offshore islands or even from the mainland, and get some of the oil reserves that are right under the nearshore waters. Uh, but, but once one gets out there and really gets into an offshore program. Um, Right. Bad news. Bad news. Well, we're getting off the topic of of the seabirds, um, and we we are coming out of time. um, But um, uh, uh, George, why don't you just give us a summary? Oh well, of the long term, I guess we haven't really said the the long term of where you're going and stuff. Oh well, I mean, what we plan to do, and uh, this is a big effort. I mean, we are a very small nonprofit that has been able to keep this going because we are a small nonprofit because we couldn't get a cut any year that would stop us. And we want to keep this study, which will soon have 40 years of, uh, of data, uh, going for the next 20 years or so, at least, and then be able to see how these changes are going. And this, and this, and this Nestle program, as I mentioned, is a big part of making sure that we can keep the study going. Um, just going out there and monitoring uh, the adult survival and the breeding bird success uh, will tell us a great deal about, about changes in the Arctic, as it has for the past uh, two, to, two to three decades. And Lori, we we look forward to continuing to hear from you, you know, via you, what's going on. Oh, that would be wonderful. I'd love to, you know, keep in touch with you and, and tell you all that's happening. And and people again should go to where? Um, they can go to Friends Friends of Cooper Island, which is CooperIsland.org, or they can wander over to Adventures in Climate Change, um, which is adventuresinclimatechange.com. It's a really great website because you talk about more than just uh, polar bears and alcids of uh, Cooper Island. 
Yeah, the, the um, Adventures in Climate Change uh, really started as a way to um, sort of look at, at look at the a whole the whole climate change issue as sort of an adventure where and trying to explain to the public what scientists are actually doing in the field. I don't think a lot of people understand like that that George is up in a remote island for three months a year worrying about polar bears and counting birds and, and doing all that. And I have some people that are working in other remote areas and doing some very sometimes very dangerous dangerous things just to to find out what the planet is up to. So that's sort of the premise of Adventures in Climate Change is to really show what, what people are actually doing. From um you know, from mountain gorillas to uh lost ladybugs to <laughs> Bacteria and biofuels and yeah, it's sort of all yeah, and um, even just things like people either coming up with uh, new green tech ideas or or th- or looking back and seeing some some of our lost skills that we we used to use that we're no longer using, like using goats for getting rid of invasives instead of herbicides and all that, and and, and big heavy machinery which just adds more carbon to the air. Uh, so it's a it's a variety. And again, you want to replace lawnmowers with goats. Well, well, that would be great, but there are invasive plants. There's a that may be a problem in my condo association. But we are working with my condo association to try to get them. We have a terrible problem with invasives, invasives which are weeds that take invasive over. Invasive species plants, yeah. Yeah, invasive species plants where they they will actually kill the trees, and we have dying trees. Um, so we were trying to get goats in there because they're actually more efficient than the, any other way to get rid of some of these invasives. So we're looking. So that's one of our lost arts is using goats. Using goats to go after uh, bittersweet or plants. Yeah, like exactly. That. They'll go after that. They'll 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 do it much more efficiently and and much more economically actually than than even heavy machinery and all the pesticides. Well, I, I invite people to to read your web. Okay. And okay. Um, adventuresinclimatechange.com. You just Google adventures in climate change, and there you yeah, are. You'll, you'll find it. Yeah. Lori Walk. Uh, Lori, thank you for um, taking the time to explain all this to us. And George, it's great to hear about your continuing, you know, expo- uh, adventures uh, up there on the top of the world, Cooper Island. What, 25 miles east of Barrow, Alaska, or Plover Point, and so that's like 25 miles into the Chukai Sea. Oh, well, it, it's it's 25 miles into the into the Beaufort, and uh, in the Beaufort, yeah, I didn't know. Yeah, and I and I and I greatly appreciate uh, your, you know, your your. Your ongoing interest uh, is a work, and I uh, hope that you can maybe come out there sometime, and you and I can write a blog for uh, for, for, well, yeah. for his website. We'll have something to talk about as we share a cup of hot cocoa in the midst of in the tin cup in your little hut there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, George, thank uh, do do keep up the good work, and uh, we look forward to hearing about your exploits. Um, uh, we'll be reporting a bit from theoceanriver.org, but mostly uh, people should subscribe to uh, Adventures in Climate Change as well as visit frequently uh, Friends of Cooper Island. And you really should think about investing in some real estate up there. You can have your own box, a, uh, what do you call a box, a Nanook? What's the word for us? Uh, or- it's, one, it's, it's called a Nanook case, and that refers to the the name that the that the company gave to their uh, line in those cases, but also to the Inuit word for polar bear, which is why we had to get them because the polar bears were eating our chicks. So nano <laughs> is a great uh, adjective to use for the nest cases. So th- that's it for this time with uh, Moyer's 
environmental dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Living Channel. We'll talk again then. Rob